we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode, I'm talking to Anna Rose. Anna has spent over two decades advocating for climate change action that has culminated into a new grassroots movement called Groundswell. talk about the impact of COVID-19 on climate action, the implications of the recently released Bushfire Royal Commission report, and where we need to head in the next five years to prevent a climate catastrophe. You've been fighting for climate action for so long now, so I'm wondering how you think COVID has impacted that fight. Like, is it a positive or a negative impact? In Australia, it has been negative because we had so much momentum on climate in the media, in political arenas, in business coming out of the bushfires. And it has been very difficult to maintain that momentum, of course, while people are focused on the immediate health implications of COVID and economic repercussions. But I would say globally, a lot of the green stimulus measures that governments, particularly in Europe, have put in place have actually accelerated the transition to renewables. There's a new report that came out recently by a think tank called Blueprint Institute that went through what Australia's major trading partners are doing on climate and a lot of their progress has actually been really integrated into economic stimulus and recovery measures um, related to the transition to renewables. So I think, you know, overall, of course, COVID has been devastating for the world and um, those implications have made it harder in many cases to uh, have the progress we need, but in some countries they've also looked at it as an opportunity to direct funding into um, accelerating progress to renewables. Mm. Do you think there's anything we can take away from our kind of rapid response to COVID-19 that can be applied to climate change action? Yeah, absolutely. It's that when we have the political will to make huge transformations in society, we can change things very quickly. It's the same lesson that we saw, you know, during World War II when almost overnight their whole economy shifted. Um, You had factories that had been producing uh, cars and then immediately they switched to munitions. You know, there's very rapid transformation that humans are capable of when we're confronted with a crisis. So that's that's a good lesson. You know, we can change quickly if we want to. I guess the other lesson is the role of listening to scientists and experts when it comes to policy making. And we've seen a really good response in Australia in terms of our governments at a federal and state level listen to medical experts, take that advice, uh, and really prioritise that advice when it comes to policy making. And that's why Australia so far has really been on top of 
COVID in a way that most countries in the world haven't been. So if we applied that same principle of listening to expert um, scientists in the climate sphere rather than the medical sphere to how we're tackling climate change, then we would see much better progress. And it also wouldn't be the political football that climate has become in Australia. It would be a matter of listening to the scientists and taking that advice on board in a really clear and rational manner, <laughs> like what's happened with COVID. I think, you know, recently um, it was announced that the coalition would be focusing on this sort of gas-led recovery. I want to know what your reaction was to that. There is no place for the expansion of the gas industry in Australia that is compatible with a safe climate future. It was really disappointing to listen to the rhetoric from the federal government about the fact that gas will be the solution um, to our economic problems the I mean the economists are not saying that and the gas industry has used this as an excuse to try and get subsidies and support for an industry that otherwise really would not be viable in terms of the expansion plans that they're looking to do so yeah that's been disappointing I think there is a lot of momentum in the communities that are actually facing the expansion of the gas industry to stop those plans. And it's been really inspiring to see leadership um, emerging from the traditional owners in the Northern Territory, um, from farmers uh, and the Gomorrah people in northwestern New South Wales, around Narrabri, uh, from Western Australia, communities saying, no, we don't want to expand gas. It's been, yeah, I think an interesting year in terms of leadership emerging from um, frontline communities who are faced with that expansion. The Bushfire Royal Commission just kind of um, was just released and we've had Royal Commissions into bushfires before, but this one was quite strong in terms of what it said about climate change. I'm wondering if that sort of signals a shift in thinking as well, because previous ones kind of like beat around the bush a little bit, but this one was so strong. Mm, the Royal Commission was really clear in uh, communicating that climate change was a major factor in making the conditions that led to these fires much worse. You know, we, we know and scientists have been saying for over a decade, actually several decades, that we can expect longer um, and hotter droughts and that that leads the conditions for worse fire seasons. And that came through really clearly uh, in the Royal Commission. I think the work of a particular group, the Emergency Leaders for Climate Change, uh, sorry, Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, um, ELCA, has just been incredibly powerful and in seeing the way that former New South Wales Fire and Emergency Commissioner Greg Mullins um, really cut through with the Australian public last summer and throughout this year, the way that I think there's over 23 emergency chiefs now that have been pushing for uh, policymakers and the public to make that connection between increased um, fire risk and climate change that has been really, really powerful to see that leadership. Mm, I want to go back to someone you mentioned, Greg Mullins. Um, I actually read your response to Judith Brett's essay, um, her recent quarterly essay, and you kind of talked about how there's been this shift in climate communication towards using people like, you know, Greg Mullins, who's a very respected, um, you know, figure in, in society. You know, he's a former um, firefighter. 
Um, do you think that's been really important in changing the conversation around climate change rather than focusing on the stats and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's personal stories that can really cut through with the public on climate now. And we know from all the research around communications that people are more likely to listen to people that they've got a lot of things in common with. And whilst climate scientists are obviously such powerful communicators on the, the science, most people don't know one personally, but the rise of these new groups of yeah, groups like emergency leaders for climate action who people have seen them, you know, every time there's an emergency or a fire or a cyclone or the SES is out there, you know, like we are used to trusting and taking advice from emergency leaders. And so for them to then bring that credibility into communicating on climate is incredibly powerful. And I think the other groups that have sprung up really, I think over the last year or few years that are mobilizing and being very powerful communicators within specific communities, groups like Farmers for Climate Action, um, the Jewish Climate Network, Parents for Climate Action, Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action, Surfers for Climate, you know, the list goes on. Uh, people are realising that you don't have to have a one-size-fits-all message or a one-size-fits-all messenger when it comes to climate and that actually um, tailored messengers that can take the science and relate it to people you know in their community and say you know for example what does climate change mean for our oceans surface for climate are talking about that um how's it going to affect our surf breaks how it's going to affect our coastlines so breaking it down in a way that's a lot more personal and tangible is really really important mm. i want to i want to go back to the bushfires um there were so many fake facts going around and it made me wonder whether these things will sort of escalate and Australians will sort of continue to think it's because of things like too much leaf litter. You know, I think that was one of the most prominent ones. Um, how do you understand and counter misinformation about climate change? Because obviously today there's so much misinformation, not just with regards to climate change, but with a lot of things. Um, and so I'm wondering if, you know, the thing that you mentioned, um, you know, uh, these stories of climate change and personalising those and you're more likely to kind of engage with climate change stories that you can relate to. I mean, um, it's kind of the same with misinformation on Facebook. You know, if someone you trust shares something, you kind of don't really question it. So does it work in the reverse? And, I mean, what did you think of the misinformation that was happening during the bushfires? And how do we counter that? Mm. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question. I think we counter it by making sure that we are putting out messages that are really credible, making sure we're talking about peer-reviewed science and putting out our messages, you know, as widely as possible. We don't give oxygen to the misinformation that's going out there. I mean, we know there's a principle of communication. Um, there's a great book actually called Don't Think of an Elephant uh, by a linguist, a political linguist called George Lakoff. So if you say don't think of an elephant, the first thing that you think of is? Yeah, right, the elephant. An elephant, yeah. So if we go out there and start talking about saying, um, you know, this was not hazard this was not an issue about hazard reduction and people just hear hazard reduction, hazard reduction. Mm. So we actually really have to reframe the conversation uh, and, and that is 
making sure that we're out there on the front foot with our messages and not giving oxygen to those those false messages. I mean, we also have to remember the vast majority of Australians support action on climate. That has come through consistently in the research. A really good one for listeners to look up is the recent Climate of the Nation report that was released recently by the Australia Institute. You know, you can see in that recent polling um, and, and in all of it over the last few years, most people support action on climate. So there are a lot of, um, there's been a lot of effort put in to convincing Australians that most people don't support action on climate or you know if you talk to a lot of people they go oh it's like probably like I support action on climate but I, I hear so many people that don't maybe it's 50 50 actually you know over 90 percent of Australians want to see us move forward on climate solutions and transitioning to renewable energy and so you know don't like yes there are some people who are still opposed to that transition but they are very much in the minority and it's not worth it's not worth um, putting too much effort into countering that. It's more about getting on with the job and supporting the progress that's already being made, you know, within businesses, um, at state government levels, at local councils and, you know, where we can, trying to push our federal government to move faster. Mm. I feel like um, with the US election now as well, there is this feeling and there was this feeling in, um, I think, 2018 when we had, or 2019 when we had our federal election like you have to wait four years and if you lose um if your you know political if your if your particular party loses or a party that isn't strong on climate change gets in power it's sort of like oh okay well that's the next four years gone well you know and it's kind of at that point where it feels like well we can't say that anymore so how do we sort of you know what can everyone do in the absence of political leadership and is it that is it that kind of thing where you're like oh we'll just have to wait until you know the next four years and we can elect someone who does have strong climate policies no we definitely don't have to wait for federal governments to act in order to use our own influence to help make progress on climate and if you look at where most of the emission reductions have happened uh, in Australia over the last decade, it has been through state and territory action. We've had incredible progress in many states. All Australian states and territories now have a commitment to a net zero by 2050 target. Many of them have put you know, huge amount of resources at a state level into accelerating that transition to renewable energy because they can see that it has benefits for their state, you know, in terms of creating jobs and economic growth, providing new opportunities for regional communities where, of course, renewable energy is going to be located. And I think that often we do get really demoralised by the lack of action at the federal level without realising that state governments and local governments are also really important. And one thing that all of us can do that's really easy is call up our local council or find out the email address of the mayor and ask whether they're already part of initiatives like the City's Power Partnership, which is a program that the Climate Council runs, which supports local governments to transition um, to climate-friendly policies. Beyond Zero Emissions also has a fantastic program for local councils. So there's a lot that we can do as citizens in engaging at the local level, even if we're feeling despairing about what's happening um, with our federal government. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au 
forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. I want to get back to one of the findings in the Bushfire Royal Commission report. Um, It kind of pointed to, you know, um, the fact that over the next something like 20 to 30 years, um, we've got climate change locked in in Australia, like it's inevitable. Um, And that's a scary fact for a lot of people living in Australia. I think even there was an, an article in The Atlantic that was basically talking about Australia will be, you know, among the first victims of climate change. It's locked in. We've got to kind of make room for that. I'm wondering how you find the ability to continue to fight when Australia is only at the beginning of fighting for its life, sort of, because you've been doing this for so long and it, it must feel like, oh, you know, once we get a progressive or progressive policies around climate change, well, yeah, great, like climate change won't happen, but so much of that is already locked in. So how do you navigate those feelings? Mm, I've been... Yeah, as you said, doing this a long time, I got involved in climate change campaigning when I was 14, so over two decades ago. And throughout that time, I've had lots of emotional roller coaster um, experiences of, oh, we've made some progress. You know, we had a carbon price passed at a federal level and everyone was so excited and Australia's emissions started to go down. Or, you know, seeing the rise of the renewable energy industry and the, the, the huge growth that it's had in Australia and seeing the leadership that's emerging from communities all around the country. But then there have also been so many setbacks. Uh, and so I think I've learned to realise that we have, you know, this transition is inevitable. Eventually, all governments, all business, all people will realise and start implementing, um, you know, will realise that climate change is the critical issue facing, you know, our, our, our generation and our children and grandchildren will be feeling the consequences of the decisions that we make or, or don't make today. Um, it's just a matter of accelerating that. Like, we are getting there. It's it's just that we're running out of time, um, really rapidly running out of time. and. I think when you're also really involved in the climate movement, you kind of don't have time for despair. Uh, People ask me sometimes about hope, and I don't really think that's the right word. I think it's about courage. And I, you know, I think about it as, okay, I'm, you know, say say I'm a single person and I want to go out and I hope I meet someone that night. You know, I'm going to the party and I'm like, oh, that'd be nice you know, I'm trying to meet someone. Um, But that's a bit of a different attitude to courage because hope, it's easy to have your hope dashed, Mm. you know, like, oh, you don't meet someone and then like it's all over and it feels very final. Whereas courage is more about, okay, I'm going to like be brave. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to go and talk to someone at the bar. Um, I'm going to put myself out there. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to like go out again next week with my friends and try and meet someone. Um, I'm going to use this analogy in other contexts. (laughs) That's actually beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not like I'm married, so I don't, you know, use this now in my own life. But I think, you know, um, it's, it's, there's a, there is a difference. Huge so difference. Even if, you know, yeah, it's, it's also about changing the odds. Like that's another way of thinking about it. Like the odds are at the moment, we are not on track to transition to policies that would leave um, us and our kids with a safe climate, but we don't just accept that. It's not like we just place a bet on whether it's going to happen or not. Like our job is actually 
to go and change those odds. And that's what I think about honestly every morning. I'm like, okay, today is another chance to change the odds on climate. And it's the same for all of us. We all have the opportunity to contribute to changing those odds. And you've started this movement called Groundswell, which is very much focused on, you know, pooling money together for the climate movement. Um, and I remember going to your event and it was such good energy. And um, I saw people going out with iPads and I was like getting people to sign up. And it, I think it was like something like $20 a week or something like quite, I guess, manageable um, in the in the context of things. Um and I thought, wow, that's like a really great strategy. But I want to know, like, what's, what's the thinking behind it? Mm. Well, there are so many amazing people and organisations in Australia who are doing incredible work to accelerate progress on climate at the local and state and federal level in communities. Um, and what they're lacking really is the funding to scale that work up. So we know from research from the Australian Environmental Grant Makers Network that only around two and a half percent, between two and six percent, but mostly the figures, um, the research comes back with about two and a half percent of philanthropy in Australia is going to fund climate change. And that is such a tiny amount of money. You know, when you look at the money that's going into medical research or universities or the arts, and all of those things are important, but if we don't protect, you know, our our planet, our the our water, our climate, um, our our food production, then there will be no ability for us to, you know, uh, do anything else. Like that really is the foundation. And so, we wanted to just take matters into our own hands. Um, there were three of us: my friends Claire and Ariel and myself. And we decided, well, one thing that we have is between us a lot of friends. And what if we just said to people, yeah, $20 a week, we'll pull our funds and we'll be able to then make grants into those organisations who are doing really incredible work and who just need funding to scale that up. So we've done, we're actually in the middle of our um, our third grant round at the moment and some of our previous grant winners have been groups like SEED who are running incredible work to oppose fracking in the Northern Territory, um, the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action who we were talking about earlier, they received our first major grant which worked, um, which was able to support them to work on the Bushfire Royal Commission and do some incredible um, reports in the lead up to that and, and, and conferences the Climate and Health Alliance who are working with doctors, um, the Western Australia Clean State Campaign, which is focusing on resisting the gas expansion in WA. I could go on. Uh, There's I won't a lot happening. But yeah, so it's really exciting for our members to be part of supporting those organisations. And I think for a lot of people, they want to fund climate advocacy and really don't know where to start. Like, where should they be putting them? That's very true. Yeah. That's very true. So that's, that's kind of the story behind Groundswell and it's growing really quickly and it's really exciting to be part of. So, I mean, post-COVID, if there is a post-COVID, um, what are you hoping for climate action in 2021 or across, like, you know, the next five or so years? Like, what's your ideal? Well, we need to transition Australia to not just 100% but 500% or 700% renewable energy which means exporting renewable energy um, to the rest of the world and we are on track to be you know we have all of the natural ingredients um, in terms of plentiful wind and sun resources and 
um, an incredibly skilled workforce, you know, educated population with the ability to really be a renewable energy export superpower. So that is my, my hope and my vision. Um, and I think everyone can play a role in getting us there. I guess more specifically in terms of next year, we will be in a position where we will have, I think, more action at state level. Uh, the recent elections in the Northern Territory and Queensland and the ACT all returned um, Labor governments, or in the case of the ACT, uh, a Green and Labor um, government that's working pretty closely together, those two political parties now. So I think um, that combined with the, the good leadership that we're seeing in New South Wales and Tasmania and South Australia from those coalition states, uh, we can expect to see the states take a, a greater leadership role on Australia's climate policy. And then the big thing for next year is the United Nations climate talks that are scheduled to be held in November in Glasgow. And they were supposed to happen this year, um, this November, but of, of course, because of COVID, international travel has ground to a halt and they postponed it. But a lot of countries around the world will be making significant um, increases to their targets to reduce emission, both in the lead up to Glasgow and big announcements in Glasgow. I think there'll be a lot of pressure on Australia um, from our international community, particularly from our trading partners. We've seen really big announcements from China pledging net zero emissions by 2060. Um, we've had net zero by 2050 from Japan and South Korea. Australia is currently negotiating a free trade agreement with the UK. The UK uh, has a conservative government, but they're much further ahead than Australia is on climate. And it's not a political football over there like it is in Australia. So I think if we're going to strengthen our trading relationship um, with the UK, that climate change could actually end up being quite a big part of those negotiations. And that would be a really positive influence on our government. And then, um, you know, I think ultimately we will be seeing, um, you know, this is what we're working towards, Australia committing to net zero by 2050 um, in Glasgow or before at a federal level. And that will just be a signal to, to business and to the, the electricity sector in particular that that is the way that we're going. We have to decarbonise our electricity sector as quickly as possible. Like we all know 2050 is actually um, too late, but that's kind of the, the current political um, number that's on the table and it's a, it's a good start so yeah there's a lot of action that will be happening and then i think the other big part of it is community campaigning to keep those fossil fuels in the ground because if we're going to stabilize global temperatures at 1.5 degrees which is the target that was set in the paris agreement uh, like that's a really really tricky thing like from a geophysical perspective now um, now that we've emitted so many emissions um, when I say we like Australia has a huge responsibility there because we are exporting so much coal and gas to the rest of the world and if the you know Carmichael project um, Adani mine all of the other mines that are proposed for the Galilee Basin goes ahead if the Northern Territory gas expansion goes ahead, if the WA gas expansion goes ahead, then it will blow the world's carbon budget. So there's kind of this two track, there's the political targets, the numbers, um, that's, that is important, but the other really important part of it is actually just keeping those, we call them carbon bombs, in the ground and, and all of the campaigns that are happening at a local level in those places are really important 
um, and any way that we can support them is great. And then the other part of it actually is around the finance sector and the insurance sector and banking. And this is the work that organisations like 350.org um, at the global level and the Sunrise Project are working on in terms of making sure that those fossil fuel projects are not able to get insurance, that they can't get um, money lent to them by banks, and that those companies aren't getting investment um, from the big asset managers. And that is a big part of um, the work that needs to happen if we are going to get those fossil fuels um, staying in the ground where they belong. Mm. Well, there's a lot happening. <laughs> um, and as you it's been great to talk to you today, Anna. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, you're so welcome. And if anyone wants to find out more or get involved in Groundswell, just head to groundswellgiving.org and we would love to start a conversation. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia.